0: Learn all about investing in real estate in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to Pittsburgh, plus syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes, not all of them specific to Pittsburgh. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors. Well, good morning and welcome, everyone. I am James Orr, and I am super excited about this morning's class. I don't know why, but I've been, uh, I've been anticipating this one for a little while. I kind of prep for classes about a week ahead of time. Uh, that's about how far I plan on what I'm going to be teaching. But uh, this one I've been, uh, I've been looking forward to. Today, we're going to go over, is it better to put 5% down or 20% down when buying rentals? And I know some of you are like, James, this is a stupid class. It's obviously better to put 5% down. And the other half of you are like, I thought he was going to say 20% down because I think that that is true. It's this really interesting phenomenon where I I don't know if this is an actual psychological principle, but I believe it is an actual psychological principle. And, And this is the principle. You have a belief, and, and maybe you're an expert at your own local real estate market, and you've done this math before. You've actually gone through and said, you know, what if I put five percent down and I bought properties for the next you know 20 years or so in my local real estate market, or what if I put 20% down and I bought properties for the next you know 20 years or so in my local real estate market, and you prove to yourself conclusively that it is better to do one or the other. The challenge is it is not universally true and that is what we were going to find out today as we go through the class is it better to put 5% down or 20% down when buying rental properties that some of this is market dependent and in case you're already trying to jump to the punchline and say Oh, it's obvious. This one once one strategy works better in less expensive real estate markets. And this other strategy works better in more expensive real estate markets. I will tell you that that is not true. Oh my gosh. That's why this class is amazing. So I'm super excited. Let's jump right into it because I got a lot to cover. And uh, I've never done a class with this sort of format outline in fact I made some of these new comparisons uh, super recently and so uh some of the stuff's gonna be new some of the stuff you may have seen early previews of depending on how many classes of mine you've watched uh but this is all brand new stuff so all right a little backstory so after i decided to take sabbatical uh must be three years ago or so now i don't know whatever it was two and a half years ago um I started thinking to myself, you know what I'd like to do? I I wrote this real estate financial planning software and it allows me to do these modeling of of investing strategies where I could say, you know, what if I decide to buy properties this way? Or what if I decide to pay off properties early this way? Or what if uh, interest rates change or rents are higher than they thought they were going to be? Or rents are going up faster or slower or prices are going up faster or slower? All these different variations I could do modeling for. But I started thinking to myself, you know, what if I did modeling for the top 300 US cities. And I did kind of analysis on each one using their home prices, their rents, their insurance rates, their kind of like, in theory, their appreciation and their rent rates, although I kind of normalized some of that. Um, and then when I started doing it, I realized there was some kind of new nuances to some of this stuff. Like for example, um, someone in a really inexpensive market who makes a little bit less at their job has a lower kind of like threshold in order to be financially independent. If you're only making $4,000 a month from your job, you don't need $12,000 a month from your passive income in order to be considered financially independent. And somebody in a more expensive market who gets paid a lot more for their job and housing is much more expensive out there, they need to overcome a much higher hurdle to replace the income that they were earning and be considered financially dependent. So we had to adjust for income while we did all this modeling. But basically what I decided to do and what I did is I decided to do modeling for over 300 US cities with a whole bunch of different strategies. And today we're going to talk about two very distinct strategies. So I'll I'll tell you what is the same and then I will tell you what is different so in both cases the two strategies we're going to kind of compare and and when I say we're going to compare them we're going to I did analysis in 300 individual markets real estate markets for one strategy and I did the same analysis uh I said a different analysis for a different scenario in the same 300 different cities and then I compared them each heads up so I said okay in wherever Los Angeles um is it better to do the 5% down or is it better to do 20% down? And then I said, okay, what about in Denver? Is it better to do 5% or 20%? And then I aggregated all that data and I could show you that in these markets, it's better. In these other markets, it's not. And if you want to drill right into your specific city and see like what the actual results are for your city, I've got great news. That is also available to you. Uh, Along with all the other modeling that I did for your city as well. So you can go do that. Uh, I'll give you a link here in a little bit. Okay. So in both scenarios, what's the same? In both cases, I said, you're going to buy an owner occupant property with 5% down. And by putting 5% down and doing an owner occupant loan, you're going to have private mortgage insurance. So it doesn't matter if I'm saying you're going to be buying 20% down rentals um, for the foreseeable future, or if you're going to continue to buy 5% down Non, uh, sorry, 5% down owner occupant properties move in, live there for at least a year, then convert the previous one to a rental and repeat the process. No matter which one you do, the first property you always buy is the 5% down owner occupant property that you live in. Okay, that is true of both scenarios. Then you buy the next property when you've saved up enough for a down payment plus six months of reserves. And the six months of reserves apply to both personal expenses and the reserves on all other properties. So I will not let you buy your next property until you have the down payment you need plus closing costs, plus any reserves, six months reserves on your personal expenses. Take whatever your personal expenses are. Make sure you have six months of reserves for that and six months reserves for every other property that you own up to that point, okay? And you can't qualify for the loans unless you maintain a 45% or lower debt to income ratio. So if you wouldn't be able to get the loan based on debt to income, I say you can't buy it. And so I try to go and do this analysis. And so you can see that some markets that have, I don't know, less than ideal rental economics, it's going to be harder to buy properties than in markets where it's easier to have those rental economics, where the rent to price is better, in other words. And then in both scenarios, I'm saying you're buying up to 10 properties total. One you're going to live in and then nine rentals. And then I say you could stop after that point point, just wait for rentals to increase if that's what you need to do in order to, like the rents to increase in order for you to achieve financial independence or properties pay off or whatever it takes to do that. Or maybe your owner-occupant pays off and that triggers you to be financially independent. Okay, so that's like what is true for both scenarios. Now, now I break it down into two different cases. Number one, where we do the nomad strategy, which is buying a property as an owner-occupant usually with a low down payment, with a slightly better interest rate, you move into the property, you live there for at least a year, it's a requirement of the lender, when you get the loan that says you're gonna be an owner-occupant, um, you sign something that says you're gonna live there for a year, and if you don't, it's loan fraud, so don't try to say, oh, James, I'm gonna solve your, your or you have to live in the property for a year, you just say you're gonna move in, and you don't, no, no, that's loan fraud, don't do that, um, so you put 5% down, you move into the property, you live there for at least a year, or until you qualify in the other terms, You know, having the down payment, and the reserves, and the DTI. And then when you finally do qualify for the next property and you have the money, you buy another rental property, you buy another property as an owner occupant, I should say, you convert the previous one to a rental, and then you repeat this process until you have those 10 properties total. So that is the first strategy where you're putting 5% down in order to buy these. Um, And then the other strategy is... That we're going to compare it to is buying twenty percent down rental. So we do the first one, owner occupant. You buy five percent down, and you live there, but then you're saving up. It takes you probably a little longer to save up because you have to save up twenty percent down plus six months of reserves uh, plus your. Um, uh 45% debt to income ratio. So it might take you a little longer to save that up, but in theory at least your cash flow is better by putting 20% down because you're borrowing less, although the interest rate's slightly better on the 5% down, so it's closer than you think in a lot of cases. But then you wait to do that, then you have 20% down payment and you buy the next rental when you have the next 20% down payment and you don't move into any of those properties you live in the same property from the beginning. So there's another weird thing that's going on here. And I don't know if I want to like throw a monkey wrench into this whole thing or not, but um so this is an interesting phenomenon, and I, I'm still on the fence as to whether or not I want to go here. I will go here because I, I'm not driving, <laughs> so I might as well go there, right? Okay, here we go. So this is the interesting thing that happens. If you think about what it takes to be financially independent, in fact, let me, let me cover this when I go over financial independence, um, which is on the next slide. In the meantime... There's a link on here uh, for those that are watching the video, realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash model allows you to see all the different modeling I did in 300 cities. And there's a specific page where I compare doing this nomad strategy, which is to buy in the 5% down ones to buying 20% down. So you can see the link on there if you want to go do it. All right, so I'm going to remind uh, I will remind myself to go over this little interesting quirk thing related to being financially independent and how it could be slightly different in the two different strategies. But let's say this. So one of the things we're going to talk about today is whether or not one strategy gets you to financial independence faster than another strategy. So in order to do that, I need to tell you what being financially independent means mathematically. And so this is my little graphic for showing you kind of, excuse me, what, financial, what, what it means to be financially independent. And really what it comes down to is there's five sources of income that counts towards you being financially independent. And for us, being financially independent means replacing the income that the person made in that particular city, working their job, but now with income from their investments, okay? So the number one, there's five sources. Number one source is any net positive cash flow from rental properties. This is the cash flow after all of your expenses. So all the income from the rental properties, rent, and anything else you have, you had laundry income, or um, you know, rent from a garage that you're renting out, or an RV space that you rented out that you were getting some extra cash flow from, or anything like that, or any all the income coming in from the rental property, minus all the expenses, including vacancy, uh, the principal and interest on the loan, any taxes, uh, PMI, if you've got PMI, private mortgage insurance, um, any type of insurance payment on the property any maintenance any management on the property all of those are expenses so the difference between all of the income and all the expenses is your net positive cash flow that contributes toward whether or not you are financially independent that net positive cash flow number if if that exceeds how much you are making from your job then you're financially independent I assume you quit your job and you can go on from there so that's kind of like the the trigger for that so that is one of five sources so that source plus, if you happen to have any extra money invested outside of the rental properties, like anything invested in stocks or bonds, or if you are making hard money loans as a hard money lender yourself, any money that you have outside of the equity in your properties, as an example, that you have invested in these things like stocks, bonds, loans as a lender, or whatever else you've got going on there, times a yearly safe withdrawal rate, if you remember the Trinity study or the 4% rule, if you've heard of that, any money that you have invested times this 4% rule, that would also count towards you being financially independent. So let's say hypothetically, you you never get to the point where you qualify with a 45% debt to income ratio and you end up with this big pile of money. Well, the pile of money still counts towards you being financially independent. It just counts in a different way. So while you're waiting to buy the next property, if you save up a million dollars, which I don't think happens in this case, we have to go look at each individual city to verify that. But if you saved up a million dollars and we use that 4% safe withdrawal rate, then $40,000 per year would be generated by that million dollars invested in stocks or bonds or loans or whatever you're doing with it. And then that would count towards you being financially independent, even if you were not buying rental properties as quickly as you would hope, because you're limited by something. In this case, it probably wouldn't be the money, the down payment or the reserves, uh, but it probably would be the debt to income ratio if this were to happen. Or- Maybe you buy your 10 rental properties and your 10 rental properties don't quite get you to where you need to be because the cash flow on them happens to be not ideal in your marketplace. And so maybe you have negative cash flow or slightly positive cash flow on those, and then you're saving your money elsewhere from your job because you're continuing to put it away and investing in whatever it is, the stock market. And then that would count towards your being financially independent as well. So Number one, net positive cash flow from rental properties, plus number two, invested assets times the safe withdrawal rate. And then there's three other sources of passive income that I kind of count. Um, If you get to the point where the person is over 65, you could get Social Security and your Social Security payments would count towards you being financially independent. Or um, if you bought any annuities, which in this modeling I did no annuities at all. So if you had annuities, though, those would count towards you being financially independent. And number five, if you had a pension from your job, that would count towards you being financially independent. But for our modeling, it's primarily going to be number one and number two, that net positive cash flow and any money you have invested at a safe withdrawal rate. Okay. So that is financial independence. Now, I'm going to talk to you about something else. So here's the interesting thing. Imagine for a minute that you're making $10,000 a month from your job. And so your your criteria for being financially independent is now $10,000 a month. And that includes you paying either rent on a property you're living in, or if you happen to buy a house and you're paying a mortgage on it, the mortgage payment on the property that you're living in. Because in order for you to kind of maintain your lifestyle in retirement, you need to have that mortgage payment that for the property you're renting and living in yourself, or the mortgage payments... Um, did I say mortgage payment? The rent you're paying on the property that you're renting and living yourself or the mortgage payment on the property that you bought and you're living in. But what happens when you finally get to the point where the property that you bought is paid off and you no longer have a mortgage payment? You no longer need the $10,000 a month that you were making at your job because now the mortgage is paid off and you don't need to make that whatever your mortgage payment number was. Let's call it $2,000. So before all of your expenses taxes, your insurance on your car, your health insurance, your food costs, your all your entertainment costs, any car payments you have, any car maintenance you have, um, any gym memberships, any Netflix subscriptions, like all the stuff that you'd have to pay, including your housing and everything else in there, might have equaled about $10,000 while you're working, you know, plus some savings. In this case, once your house gets paid off and you no longer have a mortgage payment, the amount you need drops from $10,000 a month to eight thousand dollars a month, as an example, because you no longer have that two thousand dollar a month mortgage payment. So now the threshold for you to be considered financially independent has dropped. Why do I bring this to your attention? I, I do the calculation this way, by the way. So, and you could toggle it on and off. If you're like, I don't like the way you do that calculation. If you if you're running the software yourself, you could say, do reduce the threshold for being financially independent uh, by the mortgage amount when their mortgage gets paid off or do not you know don't adjust this automatically but i do adjust it in these in the modeling i'm doing so why is this even why am i even telling you this why is it important it's important because the two different strategies are very different in how this comes into play so when you're doing the nomad strategy and you're buying a property with 5% down you're moving in there, you're living there for a year, and then you're converting that property to a rental when you buy the next one, the owner-occupant property is a year later. And when you do it again, you keep moving that year out that you buy your next owner-occupant property. So imagine you could do this in 10 years where you you had enough money saved up and you're able to acquire the properties where you're able to do this in 10 years. Well, when does your mortgage get paid off when you do the nomad strategy? Well, unless you're making extra mortgage payments toward this property, the soonest it could be paid off is it takes you 10 years to acquire all the properties. And then that last one you're living in is a 30-year mortgage. So the soonest you could expect your mortgage to be paid off is 40 years. The 10 years where you acquired the 10 properties, but the last one is the one you moved into. And that's the one you're waiting to get paid off because then you no longer have a mortgage on the property you're living in. So the soonest it could happen is 40 years. That's not true with the 20% down model, because the one that we live in with the 20% model is the first one we bought. So the soonest you could have a paid off mortgage in the first one is actually 30 years later. And this may come into play. If we don't quite have enough, if we're getting really, really close, but we don't quite have enough, maybe the reason why the one with 20% down becomes financially independent earlier is because their mortgage gets paid off, and then their threshold to be considered financially independent drops a little bit by whatever that mortgage payment was, and so that may move them over the edge and may bump them up, and we may see that in the data, okay? So now that I've got off on a tangent, let's talk about some of the other assumptions, so I think I talked a little bit about this, but I'll cover them all just to make sure I cover them. So each city's modeling uses that city's median home prices and estimated rents on those properties. So I didn't go pick a specific property and I didn't go pick this amazing deal that you could only get once every 15 years in that city. What I did is I said, look, you know what's the median home price there? And let's start sort of there. I don't wanna be buying the, the absolute cheapest stuff on the market That's kind of silly. I don't want to be buying the most expensive stuff on the market. So let's sort of pick the median most price of houses out there. And as soon as I tell you this, some of you are like, that's ridiculous. That's a ridiculous assumption for you to go use a median home price and estimate rents. I never am buying the median home price as an investment in that marketplace. And I would agree with you. I would say to you, you know, I think that's true for a lot of folks. And so our modeling is sort of like a baseline for how this city might do you should expect to pick better properties that are probably a little bit lower than the median and that have really good price to rent ratios. So it should improve from here. This is sort of like a, if you did this and you didn't do it amazingly well, It's <laughs> kind of a starting point, point. and I do do other modeling where I say, "Look, we're going to buy you know ten percent discount from the median," and I'll probably do some additional modeling where we do even more distinctions about doing that, and we apply some of the eighty eight strategies to improve cash flow um, in order to improve on that. So, in on all these models that I did, I did not apply any of the eighty eight strategies we have to improve cash flow on these. So these are not like optimized plans. They're sort of like baseline. Doing the median, doing what a typical rent might be on a median-priced property, which may not be ideal. I grant you that. Okay, the next assumption: the job income does vary based on the city. We don't we don't assume that someone living in Los Angeles earns the same as someone living in Mobile, Alabama. We just don't do it because it's not reality. You know, most people getting jobs in Los Angeles are going to have a higher wage than someone living in Mobile. And the properties are more expensive in Los Angeles than they are in Mobile. And so they really do need that to be able to qualify. So the job income varies based on them being able to afford a property in that marketplace. I say, look, you need to have the same income in order to be able to qualify for a loan. Otherwise, there may be cities where I say they're making $10,000 a month, but $10,000 a month isn't enough to qualify to even buy a median property ever. So I limited that by saying, the income you need says that you can qualify for a property, okay? Which means now that they need to replace that income in order to be financially independent. So because I gave them the boost to being have a higher income to be able to afford to buy a property, now I say you got you to actually meet that threshold in order to be considered financially independent. So cities that have higher income also need more passive income, more investment income, more rental income to be considered financially independent. In case I was not clear about that. And we assume, the other assumption we have, is we assume that everyone starts with just enough money in down payment to buy that 5% down owner-occupant property with closing costs, which I assume to be 7% of the price of properties in their marketplace with a minimum of 10K. So if your market happens to be really, really inexpensive, where that would have been less than um, $10,000, I said, never go below 10K. Everyone got at least $10,000. In, in markets where it's much more expensive to buy a property, those guys get an advantage of having a little bit saved up to be able to buy that first owner-occupant property with 7% of the price of properties in that marketplace, the median price of properties in the marketplace, as savings to start with, plus which, which means it's 5% down plus some closing cost money. And then interest rates are, as of right now, 6.5% for owner-occupant purchases with 5% down, plus a separate PMI, and 7% for non-owner-occupant 20% down purchases with no PMI. So I do penalize non-owner-occupant loans, which is the reality. So, if you were going to go get an owner-occupant loan with five percent down, you'd be paying about six point five in our marketplace. A little bit higher, a little bit less, depending on when you time it. And I will change this over time and rerun the analysis. Um, and then the non-owner-occupant guys are paying seven percent uh, for the twenty percent down, and they do not have PMI. Uh, a point on things changing over time. So I'm going to show you numbers from today. But if you come back, if you're listening to this recording after the fact, you may go to the page where you could see the details and the assumptions and and the new modeling. And you may see all the numbers different than what I said. Why? Because if I come back in here and I adjust all the interest rates for all the things and rerun them, then they may be different. Some cities maybe do better. Some cities may do worse. Or if you come to me afterward, you said, Hey, James, I saw your presentation and I'm going to ask you to do this for me at the end, but Hey, I saw your presentation. I happen to live in Atlanta. And I have, I have improved numbers for you using Atlanta, not ones where it's like I'm doing an amazing job and I'm able to get these like once in a lifetime deals, but deals that people can consistently buy in Atlanta. And it's not the median price and it's not the rent you might expect to get on the median price house there. It is. 25% below median or 20% below median or whatever your numbers happen to be and these are the these are better estimates of insurance, better estimates of taxes and so I can go ahead and give you better numbers for Atlanta and so the Atlanta numbers may also change which could change my numbers for like what percentage of these do better and what percentage how much better they do and so if you happen to be in the city and you have improved numbers for me reach out Let's improve the numbers, we'll improve the modeling, and I'll redo all of the modeling for that city. So you tell me the new numbers and it goes, I basically have a database, and then it reruns all the data from the database and creates all the, the comparison models for everything. And we can do that for a city, okay? Um, and one of my last assumptions is I did model this out for 100 years. And you might say to me, James, come on, 100 years? Why are you doing 100 years? Well, I was doing 60 years um, because I thought that was a much more reasonable time frame. But then some things were happening where people were not becoming financially independent in that 60-year period. And I thought to myself, well, what if it was at 60 years in one month that they became financially independent? So I was like, well, I'll just extend that a little bit. Maybe I'll do 65 years. And eventually, I got to the point where I kept doing that. And I was like, why don't I just do 100 years and see who becomes financially independent 100 years? Yeah, if it gets really, really far out, it's probably not going to be realistic to think about somebody becoming financially independent 92 years out. Um, but I do run it that far out so that you can see what happens, as an example. Okay. Now, if you want to see all the details of what I'm talking about, if you go to real realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash model, you can either pick a whole from a whole list of comparisons, what's better, 5% down, 20% down, which is what we're doing here, or 20% down versus 25% down, or you know, paying PMI up front versus not being, hiring a property manager versus not hiring a property manager. So there's all these different kind of comparisons I'm doing on there. Or pick your specific city and drill down into all the different modeling I did for your specific city. You can do that. Go to real realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash model, and you can see that. Now, I have to warn you, uh, I sometimes wonder if I should lock down this analysis and make it only for clients. Um, Right now, it's all open, but there may be a point in the future where I lock it down. I say, look, you know, doing this modeling, um, the people that are supporting us financially, maybe I should reward them with some extra stuff. And so that may change in the future. As of right now, it's completely open. All right, with that being said, let's jump right into the data. So there's primarily two things I'm going to be looking at. Um, although I do look at some other things like risk too, which is, which is fascinating. Like certain strategies, they may be faster. They may give you a higher net worth, but they're riskier and they, you may not want that extra level of risk, which is a totally fascinating subject. Might have to do some deep dives on that. All right. So the two primary ones I'm going to discuss though, two primary, primary measuring metrics. So the kind of things I want to measure here are how fast they get to financial independence, how fast they are. The, the passive income they've got coming in from the rental properties and any money they have invested times the safe withdrawal rate or any of those other passive incomes like annuities, social security, or pensions, like how fast does do those get them to the point where it replaces their income? And secondly, net worth. Because you may say, look, I didn't technically get to financial independence, but after 50 years, I have $14 million in net worth. I can I can live off that. You know, I may be. Dipping in more than the 4% safe withdrawal rate, or maybe my cash flow from rental properties wasn't good enough, but I could just sell the rentals, take all the money and do that, which leads me to another comment about this. I am not doing any optimization. There are strategies where you buy more properties than you need and you sell off some of them to pay off the remaining to improve your cash flow enough where that will trigger you being financially independent. I did not do that here. And, and, and that is a legit strategy for doing this. Or there are some strategies where you have, you buy enough rental properties where eventually you get to the point where the equity in the properties, after all your expenses selling them, could be sold, invested in something like stock market and use a 4% safe, which all right, and that would trigger you being financially independent. Or maybe taking some of the extra cash you have on the sideline and paying down the mortgages that you have, paying them off, using that money, and that might trigger you being financially independent faster than these ones. This is sort of like plain vanilla versions of 5% down Nomad or 20% down non-owner occupant. So with these plain vanilla versions, that's what we're covering today. All the additional modeling I do later where I talk about, you know should you do this versus this and how fast, how much difference does that make? We're going to go over all that over time, not today, but that will be addressed and discussed, and we'll kind of get there. Okay. So I told you there were two things we're measuring. When financial independence was achieved, and I've usually measured that in months, and then your net worth, which I measure in dollars. So let's jump into it. In the baseline nomad model, which is putting 5% down, 17 of those did not technically achieve financial independence in that 100-year period, but they still had significant net worth but 17 of the 300, I think there's 305, but it's it's just over 300 US cities. So 17 out of the 300 or so that we have there never never technically achieved financial independence. They have significant net worth, but they didn't achieve financial independence. In the 20% down group, of all the analysis we did for the 20% down group, 22 of those didn't achieve financial independence in that 100-year period. Again, they had significant net worth as well, but you know, there were a certain number that just never quite got there. Rough markets, markets where it's really hard to make rental properties work. So, you know, a little bit less than, I guess it's probably about 5%, you know, a little bit more than 5% or so. If you think about it as a percentage of the 300 cities, it was really, really hard to make the economics work in that marketplace. Now, as another side note, the people buying 20% down, non-owner occupant properties, they could have just as easily said, look, I'm saving up my money. Why don't I go buy rentals in a property where the economics do make sense? I could have bought properties in a property where where cash flow made a lot more sense than buying in the market where it's really, really hard to make cash flow. I didn't model that, but that's a reality, right? You can't quite do that with the nomad strategy because you're putting five percent down, you're moving into the properties and living there. Unless you plan on living in the other city, you're not gonna be able to do it remotely, right? But the 20% down one, you could have. Okay. There were 17 cities where both of them never achieve financial independence. So all 17 of the ones where Nomad didn't work, it didn't work for 20% down either. And then in addition to that, there were five more with the 20% down where that didn't work. And these were markets where it was exceptionally hard to make real estate investing work with our current assumptions. Remember, not doing amazing stuff, not doing 88 strategies to improve cash flow, not doing any of that stuff. So this is sort of like the baseline sort of, not worst case scenario, but like, Medium sort of case scenario where I'm not really trying that hard in order to make this work. Okay. So here's the number seven. 20% down achieved financial independence faster in 171 cities. So more than half the time, it was better to do 20% down. But what's fascinating about that is is for so for the people that uh, were saying, like, oh, it's, it's obvious, James, 20% down is always better. You feel vindicated. You feel like, yeah, see, James, 171 cities. Well, not so fast because 97 cities, it was faster to do Nomad. (sighs) Mind exploded because it's crazy to think about this. There are some cities where you would be better off doing 20% down, and there are some cities where you would have been better off doing the Nomad strategy in order to achieve financial independence faster. And in 37 cities, It didn't make any difference at all. It was exactly the same amount of time, whether you did 20% down or or 5% down. So in 37 cases, it didn't matter. You could have chose whatever you want to. So about 10% of the time, a little bit more than 10% of the time, it didn't matter which one you choose. Pick either one you want. But in 171 cities, a little bit more than half the time, you would have been better off doing 20% down. In about a third of the cases, you would have been better off doing Nomad. That's crazy. That's really crazy, right? This is the same data broken out a different way. So the red sections show you how many of the cities achieve financial independence in this sort of time frame. So there were about five nomad cities, cities where people were doing the nomad that they achieved financial independence in less than a hundred months. Only took them about a hundred months to be financially independent doing the nomad strategy in that particular city which is crazy. But there's only five cities like that. There were about, I don't know, whatever this is, 13 cities where it took just over 100 months, probably in the 100, and, 100 to 150 months. And then there were 15 cities where it was in that, I don't know, 130 to 160, 130 months to 160 months. So about 10 years to whatever that is, 14 years, um, you know, somewhere in that ballpark for doing that. And then it kind of goes down a little bit and then it kind of goes up here. Um, but you know, there's some other stuff here. So remember what we said with the Nomad, the fastest they could actually pay off a property would be about 40 years. 40 years is about 480 months if my math is right. And so we do see a, a little bump up here with some cities that could be financially independent there. And maybe some of them took a little longer than that, exactly 10 years to acquire the property. So we do see a little bump up for the nomad ones here, where we see a larger number of them being financially independent just after that kind of like 40-year period, which we'd expect. And there were some that took a long time, but not that many. You know, it's a relatively small number that took more than this really long time to get that. Now, the gray lines are the 20% down ones. So similarly, there were a few, there were five ones who were putting 20% down. They achieved financial independence really, really fast. You know, Less than probably five years. Their requirements weren't that hard to be financially independent doing that. And then there are a whole bunch here that kind of like increased over time and you can see where they are. Now, just visually looking at it, it's kind of hard to do, but visually looking at it, it almost looks like 20% down shifts a little tiny bit to the left. So my gut feeling... Just, just glancing at this and not doing any math on it. And I could be totally wrong about this. It seems as though 20% down is the tiniest bit faster. The tiniest bit shifted to the left where we front load like how many months it takes to be financially independent. All right. Now before, remember I asked you, you're like, so James, it's obvious it's the more expensive cities that are the ones where it's harder to be financially independent. And so those are the ones where it's better to do whatever strategy you think is true, right? Which- I'm going to show you it's probably not true. Okay. So this is a chart showing you how much faster one strategy is over another. And so I'll I'll describe what's going on here by taking like one dot here. So let's just take this dot. So in this city, because it's green, green means that 20% down was better by that many months. So in this dot, Putting 20% down was about 50, a little bit less than 50 months faster, a little bit more than four years faster to do 20% down than doing Nomad. And that is a city where the home prices are about 400,000, because this shows you how expensive the properties were in that market at the start. So the dots that are over here are expensive markets. The dots that are over here are less expensive markets. And if they're green, it means that 20% down was better by that number of months. In most cases, it's going to be less than four years difference. Well, four years faster, because this is the 50-month range. So uh, 20% down was less than four years faster in most of these dots. Versus over here where the dots are red, that means that Nomad was faster by this number of months. You know, in this case, like, you know, right here, this is about... I don't know, 70 months faster. So in a market that was a little bit less than $250,000 properties, Nomad was about, I don't know, seven years or so faster. It seems like, whoops, I clicked on the button. And so you've got to get feel. And then these gray dots are on the zero line where those are exactly the same. Now, if you said, you know, it's because they're all in really expensive markets, that's why 20% down is all better. We would expect to see a whole bunch of green dots over here with expensive markets, and if you said, "Hey, nomad is better in really expensive markets," those show up over here. We'd expect the dots to be over here for doing that. But as you can kind of see, most of these things are clustered where they're relatively evenly distributed by price. There's not like all of them are on one side of the line or all of them on the other side of the line based on a certain price being there. And so you could see it's relatively even. It's not a price sort of thing in that marketplace. Now I will point out one thing though. There are times when Nomad is a lot faster, a lot of number of months difference, where most of the time, the 20% down, well, maybe faster, it's not that much faster. Less than four years. You can kind of see that, all right? But there are times when Nomad is significantly faster. And so you might wanna consider that when you're thinking about which strategy to use as well, okay? All right, so we talked about speed to get to financial independence. Now let's talk about net worth. So as far as net worth goes, You have a higher net worth. I I picked 40 years in the future as an arbitrary stopping point. So this is the net worth at year 40. 40 years in the future from when you start, you have a higher net worth starting with the same exact amount of money, by the way. Everyone starts the same money. Everyone starts with the same earning power in that city. So I'm comparing the same city to the same city. So we're saying that a higher net worth is a comparison between the same city, Atlanta to Atlanta, LA to LA, Denver to Denver, like we're comparing the same city to the same city. We're not comparing one city to another. So in that case, 103 of the cities, you would have had a higher net worth doing the nomad model than doing 20% down. So about a third of the time, you would have a higher net worth being a nomad at year 40 than doing 20% down. In about 189 of the cities, you would have a higher net worth putting 20% down than doing nomad. So squint really hard. It's like a third of the time better for Nomad, two thirds of the time better for 20%. And honestly, 13 cities, you didn't have a difference where net worth was essentially the same. Okay. Um, And we'll go over some of these numbers here a little bit better. Oh, I want to also point out that when when I talk about these net worth numbers, you're going to hear some numbers here in a minute about like, you know, they have $11 million or something like that. Realize that's $11 million in 40 years in the future. And so it's an inflated dollar because there's inflation happening over that time. It's like having about one third of that today. So if you wanna say like, well, what is that in today's dollars? The rule, general rule of thumb using a 3% inflation rate is we're gonna see about one third of that value 40 years in the future. So um, if it's $12 million 40 years from now, it's gonna be about $4 million in today's dollars if you think about that. All right. Remember we did that chart before I told you how much longer it took to be financially independent. And I broke it out by showing you, here's where it gets more expensive with the houses and here are the least expensive, the the less expensive houses. And the ones that were green were for one strategy and the ones that were red for another strategy. We did the same chart, but now we're talking about the difference in net worth. And so the green ones are where Nomad has a higher net worth and the red ones are where the um, 20% down has a higher net worth. And you can see there are times when the net worth is pretty significantly higher for some of these strategies. And you can see that because the red ones tend to cluster closer to the zero line, that means that the difference in net worth is slightly lower for a lot of these for 20% down. In other words, the amount of difference in net worth is probably less when 20% down wins, when 20% down is more, And with green, with the the Nomad ones, sometimes the net worth is significantly better. There are some outliers where it's way, way, way better in terms of net worth for you to do Nomad than it was for you to do the other things. And there are some outliers over here too, but it seems like the green ones have more outliers to do that. The other thing to point out is, is this a pricing thing? Do we always see higher net worth as the price increases? I don't think so. You know, maybe the 20% down has a slightly skewed thing, where they have some more stuff here with higher net worth but overall and maybe you could say the green ones are a little bit more effective in the lower price range because they kind of show up lower but overall i wouldn't say it's too extreme just glad set the data okay all right so it is possible even with six months of reserves before you buy your next property if a property has really ugly negative cash flow and your savings rate isn't enough to to supersede that, it's possible you could run out of money doing these strategies. And so there are nine cities where you possibly run out of money doing this strategy when you're doing Nomad. And there are no times when you run out of money putting 20% down. So that's super interesting. But remember, we're not doing optimized plans. We're, We're not... And, and you could just as easily set aside the negative cash flow you needed to do this. I didn't model it this way, and it's why they ran out of money. But you could set aside negative cash flow. And I didn't optimize and improve cash flow. Um, you know, we didn't buy better type deals to do that. So something we could think. And it's not that many, right? I mean, we're talking like nine out of 305 cities or something like that. And 296 of the cities, you did not run out of money, and it was basically there. Okay. And so this, if we did this in real life, we could probably get rid of these nine. But because I modeled them and I did just really, really program, like fixed programmatic investing strategy, that's why you ran out of money. Okay. Oh, these are the ones that ran out of money and how much they ran out of money. And some of them were significant, which makes sense. If you're buying really ugly negative cash flow properties and you keep buying more of them, yeah, it's going to compound on stuff and get ugly. So yeah, there's some of them that were, some of them were really small. Some of them were relatively small, some of them were medium size, and so and one of them was really ugly. Okay. Most of them were this gray line where they were not running out of money, everything was the same. And it tends to be more expensive properties, you know, clustering around this 1.5 million and up range. So in markets where it's much more expensive, it's much more, much harder to make the positive cash flow work. Those are the ones we're seeing that with. Although there were a couple down here where you just had ugly ratios. And this could be another situation where, you know, I'm using numbers that I think are realistic, but I'm not an expert at whatever city they are. I don't even know. But, you know, I'm not an expert at whatever city. And you look at my numbers, you're like, James, no wonder why your numbers aren't working. Your, you know, your your rent is about 20% low. Okay, well, tell me that and we'll fix them. All right, here's a summary. I break down the summary in two ways. I, I look at what the average was for all 300 cities, and then I also look at what the median was. So the average is you take all the numbers, you add them together, you divide by however many there were—305 or something like that. The median says, okay, stack all the numbers so that the lowest number is up here, the highest number is down here, and pick the middlemost value. So it gives you an idea of what the middlemost or the the median number would be. Okay, so let's look at this. As far as median goes, the middlemost number. The median most net worth, the middle most net worth doing the Nomad model at year 40 is about $8.2 million. So half of them were better than that. Half of them were worse than that for how much net worth you'd have. $8 million versus it's $8.2 million. 20% down is $8.9 million. So it's a little bit higher in terms of net worth on median, a difference of about $640,000. So again, 40 years in the future, it's really a third of that. So it's like a $200,000 difference or about 7.8% difference. Not like nothing, but not crazy extreme either. So the difference between net worth between these two, you know, 40 years in the future, um, it's about $640,000. It's like almost being a difference of $200,000 now on a, you know, $3 million-ish net worth. Yeah not super crazy significant in my opinion okay um the median as far as whether they were short on money the typical property was not short on money never ran out of money and we in the in the median most case we bought all 10 properties in both both situations as far as how long it took on median to achieve financial independence for the nomad model the middle most number was 529 months which uh, if anyone wants to do the math, what's uh, 529 divided by 12? Let me use my calculator. I'll tell you a second. Let's see. Calculator 529 divided by 12. So about 44 years on median. So half of them were better than 44 years, half of them were worse. In terms of 20% down, 509 months divided by 12, 42 years, a difference of about 20 months, a little bit less than two years difference between those two for the middlemost number. Now, in terms of risk, because I'm running a little bit short on time, I'm not going to go like crazy into risk, but I will just point out to you that the Nomad model was better in half of the measures of risk, and the 20% down model was better in the other half of the measures of risk. So if you think about it, they were each risky in their own way. For example, the rent resiliency, how much rent can decline before you'd have negative cash flow, because you're only putting, um, you know, 5% down, you might think the Nomad one is riskier, but it turns out it's actually slightly less risky because we're measuring the risk over the entire period of time. And so you end up owning the properties a little earlier. So rents tend to increase a little bit. And so you're, you end up getting properties where the rents are a little bit higher because you've owned them for longer. And so the rent resiliency tends to be a little bit better, a little bit safer, in other words. But we're not talking about a huge difference. In in the rent resiliency over the entire period for Nomad, it's 36%. And the rent resiliency for 20% down is 33%. So the Nomad strategy is about 8.3% better, not points, but 8.3% better. So it's a little bit better, marginally better. But when you look at like debt to income, it's better from a debt to income perspective that you put 20% down because you have less debt compared to the income you have because you put more down. It's, the nomad strategy is much more highly leveraged. So when we measure it that way, 20% down is less risky. It's interesting, but that's kind of how it works. Like there's You give and take on some of these risk measures to do it. And i now point out sometimes there are strategies where it's way better to do one strategy. It's really clear. And then you got to decide, are you willing to take on that extra risk in order to have that. Okay, so we covered all the median ones. I did the same thing for averages. The average net worth for a Nomad um, at year 40 is about $11.9 million. For the 20% down, it's also about $11.9 million. The difference is in the $10,000 range. So it's about $73,000 difference in net worth. Not significant when you look at averages, it's only 0.6% difference between a 5% down strategy and a 20% down strategy when you take the averages of all the different cities. Okay, um, number of properties, the Nomad, you end up buying a little bit less properties, 9.1 properties on average versus 9.8 for 20% down. Again, not that significant of a difference. In terms of the months uh, before financial independence is achieved, uh, 547 months on average for Nomad versus 544 months for 20% down. It's only 26 Months difference on average. That's really it's very similar. I mean, that's that's like a rounding error in whether one person increases rent on a property early or not. It's really not that big of a difference at all. So they're interchangeable. And again, it's very similar risk. Three out of the six measures of risk, it's better to do nomad, and three out of the six measures of risk, it's better to do 20% down. Kind of interesting. It's it's much closer than I think a lot of people would have thought. All right, I, I've been talking about this throughout the presentation, but I have a slide on it. So we're using a median property price, and we're using sort of like the rent for what that median property price would be. You could apply all of the 88 tra- or some of the 88 strategies, you never apply all of them. Some of the 88 strategies we have to improve cash flow to improve on these numbers. So these are not like best case scenario by any means. We're basically using median price properties and what rent might be on those in each market. You should be able to choose and do better. And I do model some of those improvements to see the impact. If you go to the models page, you can look at those. If you're an expert at your local market, this is my call to action to you. If you're an expert at your local market and you want to help improve my numbers for your local market, just reach out via email and I can make an update to the numbers in the database and I can rerun all the scenarios for your market to improve them. I assume it's improving. Maybe it's making them worse. Uh, I'm not trying to show you best case. That is never my intention. So don't like email me and say, James, here's the property I just bought. It's a freaking amazing deal. Because I don't care. I don't care like, I mean, I care like, great job, dude, the amazing deal. But I don't care for like running my numbers based on your amazing deal because no one else can replicate your amazing deal. You may not be able to even replicate your amazing deal. You want to go buy 12 of those? Good luck. And that's the problem. I don't want to use like these amazing best case numbers because I don't want it to be like, hey, James, where can I get the deals you're showing on the website? Because those are crazy good numbers. And I would buy those all day long if I could find them. Yeah, we're not trying to do that. We're trying to do the the types of properties that any real estate investor in that market could get and expect to achieve, okay? So if you have those numbers, reach out to me and we'll, we'll do some updates. Local market limitations. So if you're nomading, and I talked about this before, moving into each property, you must be buying properties in your local market. You can't do nomad remotely, can't be moving into properties in another city. But if you're buying non owner occupant properties, which is 20% down, you could buy those in markets with better cash flow economics. So if you're in a market where it's one of the really ugly ones where you're going to run out of money with like the baseline stuff, say, maybe I shouldn't be buying properties in this market where properties are $2 million and you only make $2,000 a month in cash flow. That's an exaggeration. That doesn't exist, but, or maybe it does. But basically, I'm not telling you to do those. You could go choose another market where the economics are better. With 20% down, you don't need to invest in your local market in that case. All right, so in conclusion, this is awesome. I, I, I love this stuff. If you guys love it, reach out to me. If you don't love it, maybe don't tell me <laughs> because I love it so much. All right, so in conclusion, in our current market conditions, the price, the interest rates, the rents, and 300 plus US markets using less than ideal median price to rent properties, putting 20% down is probably slightly better in terms of net worth and speed to financial independence. Not by a lot though, right? That the market does matter though. In some markets, Nomad is faster, more profitable and arguably better. So you can't automatically say X is better. I I will tell you, I I occasionally read or hear about something where someone makes these like statements of fact, like it's always better to put 25% down or 20% down or it's always better to manage your properties yourself. I don't know, there's a lot of things in life that are not as like clear, clean cut, perfect lines. It's universally better in all situations. I think there's a lot of nuance. I think that's part of what I like about this class is it shows you that, hey, sometimes it's better to nomad. Sometimes it's better to do 20% down and your market may have an impact on that. In terms of resiliency to market conditions over the entire 100 year modeling period, nomad is slightly less risky. We talked about that, the resiliency part. Although not shown in the presentation, NOMAD tends to shift risk earlier and becomes less risky later on. It doesn't show you this in this presentation, but as far as NOMAD goes, NOMAD tends to compress your risk into the earlier parts of your investing strategy and tends to make it less risky later on. In terms of measuring the risk associated with debt, it's split. In some ways, Nomad is less risky, tends to have more liquidity, especially later on. But in terms of debt to net worth and debt to income, Nomad is riskier because you're putting less down and you have more leverage. And you tend to have more months of reserves when putting 20% down. It's best if you look closer at your specific market and apply as many of the 88 cash flow improving strategies as practically possible to improve on your implementation. That is all I have for you. I hope you enjoyed this. I thought it was awesome. I I enjoy kind of doing classes like this. You probably should expect some more of these where I kind of compare lots of different strategies over time and we kind of deep dive in this. But in addition to that, go dive into your own specific market to see how this all plays out and look at the analysis. And if you need help with stuff like that, reach out to me via email. All right, that's all for now. This has been James Orr. Bye-bye for now. With home prices up, mortgage interest rates up and rents up, but not quite enough to counteract the higher prices and interest rates. Cash flow on rental properties in Pittsburgh is harder than ever. Book a call with the Real Estate Financial Planner to apply our proprietary 88 strategies to improve cash flow on your rentals. See the show notes for a link to schedule your call and improve your cash flow today. If you're a real estate agent, lender, or professional in Pittsburgh that wants to help our real estate investor listeners consider reaching out to learn about collaboration opportunities with this podcast. We'd love to add more value to our listeners by having you assist our investors buy, sell, and finance their real estate investments. See the show notes to schedule a call to discuss collaboration opportunities.